Welcome to the future of gaming. GM friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Um, we've got almost the usual crew. We have Devin Becker and myself, Nico Vreke. And we have a special guest today, Carlos Pereira, who is a partner at Bitcraft. Um, I work very closely with him on our uh, crypto side. So we uh, look at the, the Web3 gaming markets. Um, before we dive in, and, and um, we, uh, yeah, I'd like to just mention that a few days ago, we had an amazing meetup that Devin wasn't at. But so, you know, the reason Phil is, is not here is because he's flying back from London back to Denver. And yeah, we had an amazing time. So if you were there, um, thanks for joining. It was, it was really good. We had like 30 or 40 people joining. Um, talked games, talked also non-related, uh, game-related stuff. It was really fun. Um, and so next up is going to be GDC. So um, if you're there, let us know and join us. Um, also, my editor asks me to mention that, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube, press subscribe. If you're watching this on Spotify or another podcast player, do the same. Um, and if you like it, you can also leave a like or a rating. All right, let's dive in. So, Carlos, um, you like you and I have talked on a podcast a few times already. But for those of uh, the listeners that don't know you, can you give us a, a brief, brief background? Sure. Um, I'm Carlos. I've been an investor since 2015, um, the early years of my career in private equity, private credit, and also growth uh, at an organization called Eldridge. It's a $40 billion uh, privately held investment holding company with uh, investments in sports, media, entertainment, um, financial services, uh, including the LA Dodgers and the Golden Globes and a bunch of like basically things that everyone has watched. Um, I began building out the games investment strategy there in 2018, uh, scaled it to our first 10 assets, which included Cloud9 and um, a growth stage investment in Epic and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, then I spent a year at a portfolio company that was having some difficulties with their user acquisition funnel blowing up, uh, trying to help them pivot the business and lean costs and all of that stuff. Um, and then joined Bitcraft in May of 2021, uh, where I've been since. And now I lead the crypto fund here, which is responsible for about a third of our total AUM. The company that you joined and you tried to help out with their UA, how did that end? It's a very expensive lesson. Very expensive lesson. That's, by the way, how VCs communicate. You know, it's expensive lessons, and and you know, it's uh, yeah, good. Um, thanks, thanks for that. Um, I, I tried in the intro to think about what we're going to talk about, but over the past five episodes, I've said that we were going to try and talk about some things, and then we didn't touch upon those at all. So we're just going to see where this goes, and then afterwards, in the notes, I'm going to put what we talked about. I think that's the safer. It's safer uh, thing to do. Anyway, uh, Devin, how are things on your end? Good, good. Uh, I mean, uh, my my money isn't online anywhere here for the most part, so I'm I'm in a safer place, keeping my investments low. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully you guys can lead the way with uh, with the money, <laughs> so I don't have to. I can just watch from the sidelines, invest in popcorn. Uh, but uh, but yeah, good, good. Just just finished minting my my champions ascension elemental. Had to jump in on that. I guess mm. watch watch the gas price battle for a minute. I guess there was some in the room. mint going on at the same time. So pretty exciting. Fantastic. Are you feeling FOMO for the the Pocket Gamer Connect that was going on in London? Not, Not at particularly. all. No. I I honestly didn't pay enough attention, but it was like it just seemed very like focused on maybe a different audience than I was interested in. But mm. I don't know. I don't know. 
I, yeah, I, was, think I'm, I think I'm good. I'm waiting for everything to be in the metaverse again. I don't want to have to go places physically. Yeah, I mean, true. I thought this was the future of gaming, not like the analog past. We all get together around a campfire of gaming, but you know. I'll tell you, it was the most um, attended Pocket Gamer Connect in London, and the venue was not ready for it. So it was it was pretty terrible. Um, That's like I had to do an esports event at uh, one of the um, the the old Olympic stadiums. Uh, it was it was a dream hack, I believe, in in Canada, and that place was like falling apart. Like it was bad. It was from like the Olympics, I think, in like the seventies, and uh, was not well held up. Mm-hmm. Good. All right, let's um, let's talk a bit about Web three VC. Obviously, I have a, I have a lot of thoughts there, um, but I'd like to um, to understand Carlos from a founder point of view. That is raising right now, which you and I know there are quite a lot of, right? Uh, during the initial bull cycle, there were a lot of very expensive pre-seeds and seeds raised. Um, and additionally, it seems like a lot of teams thought that the bull market was never going to end, and they decided that burn rates, who cares about burn rates? Um, and they expected to be able to raise at a, another multiple of their valuation a few, like, let's say, a year later. Um, seems not to be the case. What's your take right now? If you're looking at the market, what do you see? Um, you know, I think that this is a good um, a good place to try to argue that my very expensive lesson was a lesson at all and not just like a very expensive <laughs> non-lesson. Because um, I did have the benefit of being in an experience where um, had raised a ton of money at a big valuation, uh, product wasn't there with the stage of the financing, um, needing to go out and to raise money, needing to think about like fixing the cap table because of like, how would it, the round look like post dilution like all of that stuff. Um, and what I recall is that when we were in the room trying to decide how to approach the next raise, um, there was a very strong bias against taking the pain on headcount cuts or taking the pain on fixing the cap table before getting that next investor. Because we were like, well, we don't know exactly how much we're going to get and we don't know at what valuation. And maybe that kind of person would want the organization to be a little bit fatter and grow a little bit faster. And if we do layoffs now, then everyone is going to find out and no one will talk to us, blah, blah, blah. And the way it played out was, well, one, we ultimately did a bunch of layoffs because we had to in order to survive. It never made the news. Like, no one was actually that important that everyone found out we had done layoffs. Of course, people hear about it at the margin, but, like, barely any investor questions. Like, oh, I actually just saw you did a round of layoffs. Like, no, no questions. Um, And a lot of the new people that were coming in, they would be like, oh, like this product looks cool or the management team is cool or like there's some cool element here, but I don't have the patience or the time to untangle the cluster that this is before I deploy my capital. Um, and, and it was very clear that it would have been more beneficial to the business if they had taken the pain up front, if we had taken the pain up front and cleaned up house and said, okay, like, let's fix the cap table. Let's go to our existing investor group and let's basically tell them we will seek a down round at this price instead of waiting for someone else to tell you what the down round should be. The consequence of this will issue these options. We'll do this thing, like all of that. So you could approach a new investors and you could say, 
do you love this thing? Yes, I love it. It's like, okay, here's the price. Here's the potential price and structure, but like not, okay, go figure out if this is the one deal that you want to do out of the three deals you're going to do and you're busy and like whatever. Right. Um, and so the lesson was very much one of biting the bullet early and biting it pretty hard. Um, not waiting for the market to solve your problem for you, not expecting new money to give you like the guidance. And where I see that today is burn. Um, I see that today with valuations. Um, And very importantly, I think we see it today with the deals that only raise tokens uh, without raising equity. Um, Because now, as all those founders come back to market, they have the... um, the reality that they're going to have to raise equity, right? Like there's no token only rounds getting done. There's two that have gotten done recently, like in the last few months, there were both huge exceptions and like whatever the, the 99% of cases, you're not going to get a token round done. All right. So the typical, like the typical answer, the level one surface answer is like, well, I'll just raise equity. And it's like, okay, but well, like, what does that mean? Right? Cause like now you have one stakeholder that owns this part of your company, another stakeholder that owns this part of the company. And like, are you going to serve two masters? Like, how does that work? And it's like, you start getting into that question, right? And then there's a fundamental moral and ethical question around it, which is if you take individual one's money and you create a bunch of value from it, but that value is next capitalized in a different box that an individual has no upside, like what are you going to do? You're going to be like, oh yeah, thank you for your money on the tokens. We're actually going to have to divert all the cash flows to the equity because like we have equity investors now and it's awesome having your support and sit there and wait for maybe the token to come out like live one day, right? And like that's obviously a horrible situation, especially when companies need the follow-on dollars because there's very few rounds that are getting done where someone takes the whole thing, right? And so um, price structure and overhead are like three areas that a bunch of people are very exposed to and the ones that bite the bullet the hardest and before, you know, before asking for someone else to solve the issue, in my opinion, have higher odds of success. Yeah. Um, You mentioned fixing the cap table. I'd like to touch a bit more upon that because I don't think we've ever spoken about that. Um, I haven't... Like, I haven't looked at enough deals and enough cap tables to be able to, like, give you a good insight into, you know, what a bad cap table looks like and how you, like, start fixing that, what some of the approaches are. Could you give some more um, of your thoughts there? The core belief is that you should be backing management teams that have so much at stake um, that they will fight harder and produce more value and not be incentivized to take a corporate gig at some large public company where they can post, here's my routine and my nine to five at Meta and go viral on TikTok, right? Like that's kind of, because like, you know, corporate seems to be pretty cushy. I mean, maybe it's getting hard now, but like it was, you know, like a very nice paid vacation for a lot of people. And so it's like, if you're not going to do that and you're going to eat shit starting a startup, then you might as well like be very incentivized for it. Um, And I think that that's the core belief. Historically, seed rounds would get done anywhere between, I don't know, like 20, 25% would be an average. You hear of seed rounds that got done much more expensive, like 50% dilution. I'd say like those are more atypical. And every time you're going back out to market to raise series A, series B, whatever, you're taking like another 20% dilution such that by the time a founder would exit the business, they would hold, I don't know, 20 to 40% to the founding team, right? Like I think rough high-level metrics. Um, 
the market at the bull market became non-dilutive funding via tokens. Or if you want to think about like, fine, like all the value will accrue to the network. And like, you should think about it almost in a pseudo equity sense from like a cap table perspective. It got to 10% dilution, right? 10% of the supply is what you were buying. Um, So as the market reverts, um, the question is like, how can you raise a down round? There's the anti-dilution provisions, basically a bunch of stuff that, that relates to it, where it's like, how can you raise a down round or your next round if now all of a sudden you're worth $30 million or $50 million, but you happen to be incurring $15 million of burn a year and you're telling me you need two years to finance your game. It's like, okay, so you want to raise like a 30 on a 50 round. Like that obviously breaks the economics of the management team. Um, and so it's that, right? It's making sure that that there's stakeholder alignment and that the management team is incentivized to succeed. Yeah, I have a lot of questions around a lot of like investment changes. Personally, I don't know if you had something you wanted to go to, Nico, but I'm I'm really curious on a lot of like things you guys are going to have to deal with going forward. Go ahead, man. We're ready. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, first question for me is like, so let's say everything gets turned into a security, right? Like tokens are securities now, NFTs are securities now, and like you guys have to continue to invest in games, right? Like, how how are you approaching that? Then are you just like, well, then let's just make equity deals, or is there because, like, for example, a lot of these, a lot of these companies uh, that are companies in quotes, uh, starting these games are just dudes out of their their bedroom, like calling themselves a company and, and raising all this stuff, and uh, don't have the the ability to even handle the paperwork for half of that 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 security stuff, right? And obviously, like, the maturity is going to have to get there with a lot of these companies to be able to do these deals. But it's like it can't just be like, you know, oh, you, you, we got some tokens, you know, we've got some smart contracts set up to vest this stuff. Like, boom, it's done. How do you guys approach this stuff going forward then? About half of our bull market deals included an equity component and a token warrant component. Um, Nowadays, about 90 plus percent of our deals are equity and tokens because we've made one basically in the process of making a second exception, but like very much the exception to what we do. Um, And I think that 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 generally is better for a couple of different reasons. One of them um, is a lot of studios, like if you look at the M&A market for, for, or like the exits market for games, um, a lot of people make a good first game, but it doesn't become an IPO-able company. Um, and you can still get good returns by selling that studio to a large publisher and like all of that. But the nature of SAFT agreements is such that you don't have any attachment to the assets of the business, which means that if you're in the token and they sell the assets of the business, you're only getting paid back if if they really want to be nice to you and they come up with a creative way of getting that cash back with, I don't know, buy and burn tokens, whatever, right? Um, and so it doesn't really allow you to capture value for the median case. And it, it indexes you towards only home runs make sense or you kind of need home runs for, for it to make more sense. Um Whereas when you're in the equity, um, you can both capture that median part of the distribution um, of, of, of what su- success can look like, but you can also be flexible with um, the regulatory landscape where I'm not like, I don't think everything will be a security. I'm not on that camp, but I do think that you will see increased regulation. Um, the only reason why you wouldn't see increased regulation is because we're all wrong and this whole crypto gaming thing fucking sucks and no one uses it. And then like, who's going to bother regulating this thing, right? But if you actually believe that you're making games that are going to impact hundreds of millions of users, then you have to believe you're going to be regulated over the life of a venture fund. Like there's no two ways about it, right? And so the question is, 
How can you create structures that align you with the management team in a way that you can capture value in whatever, like whatever way the business has to be optimized to comply with future regulations? For example, okay, primary NFT sales are a heavily centralized source of revenue, and therefore that income has to flow to an LLC. But marketplace trading fees, especially if the platform isn't funding the liquidity for it, is decentralized revenue, and you can find a way of buying and burning the tokens for that, right? Um, if you are only on the token, you're basically always having to force fit um, the business model to where you're attached to value because, like, otherwise, why would you care, right? Like, that the, the value is being created outside of your, your place of capture um, versus if you're fully aligned with the management team. And the question is, like, how do you make this the best product for the user and the best business model and the biggest it can be? And, like, we'll make money, like, in each of the different pockets in, in different ways, right? Um, and so... Um, that's kind of like why we care about the structure. Now, when I say that 50% of the deals were token-only deals and now it's 90%, it's not like I woke up, we woke up as a team, you know, as an organization six months ago and we were like, oh my God, like, can you believe that equity matters? Like, no shit equity matters, right? Like, I like I come from structured credit and structured equity and I've like, I've done a lot of this personally, right? Um, but you know, if you think that your job is to be deploying pay, uh, capital at a roughly consistent pace and not trying to time the macro too much and backing the best entrepreneurs that the market has to offer you at each point in time, then that means that you're going to do some token deals in the bull market because the best of the best teams would never accept equity and we are there to like fund them versus trying to like not fund them, right? And so, you know, I think the, the, there was a quote by, um, by one of the benchmark partners. He was like, the best way to enjoy the bad times is to enjoy the good times, right? Just like understanding cyclical nature. And I'll say like the best time for us to enjoy the good times or to enjoy the bad times, right? Like in, in that, like, yeah, it is bad, but you get paid for it for laying out risk and structure and price. And, you know, it's, it's a good time to be there. I, I guess, I, go, ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I've made some notes um, for myself on like cap table dynamics and what you need to keep in mind when you do so. And so, what we need, number one, is to align incentives, right? That, you know, as an investor, if you want to come in, you want to make sure that the investors of or the, the incentives of the people that are actually building the business and make the decisions are aligned with yours. Um, the next thing, which is what Carlos talked about, is we need to, you need to keep the founders incentivized, right? You need to make sure that the founders still have enough of a stake to keep going. And this could be done through tokens and through equity, right? I mean, I've already made the case that I think there's a world where a lot of the, you know, securities live on chain. And so, you know, for me, I'm, when I say this, it's it's separately from whether you decide to raise equity or tokens, although I think equity is like, it's a pretty, pretty good thing because there's a lot of rules around it and that provides a lot of safety and a lot of like standards that just make sense for businesses. Um, so we need to keep the founders incentivized. We need to keep investors incentivized. Um, and so like as an investor, you don't want to, like if, you, if you're running a $100 million fund, like you don't want to invest like a ticket of 200K because then you're going to have to write, uh, what's my math here, 500 tickets. And, you know, you, you can't spend time. Like, we're, we try to be very helpful and, and supportive of our, the companies that we invest in. And you want to have enough of a stake with, so that it makes sense for you to, to work with founders closely. And then the most important thing is, and this is also something that Carlos mentioned, is that you want to preempt these same discussions for future rounds, right? Most companies are not able to build, like, a self-sustaining, growing business 
with like, let's say, with a seed round of five million plus a pre-seed of two, right? They need more. And so you, whenever you have a cap table, you need to think about, okay, how does this, like with the dynamics of this business moving forward, how will we want, like what will new investors want to see when they come in and how will we keep, you know, incentives aligned, founders incentivized and new investors and old in investors incentivized as well. Um, so yeah, these are some of the, the dynamics here. Anything to add, uh, Carlos, from your perspective? No, you always do a much better job of being succinct than I am. <laughs> Dude, that is such <laughs> bullshit. This man, you know, every time he opens his mouth, I'm like, fuck, he says that so well. So I'm going to call bullshit on that. Anyway, uh, Devin, you were, you were going to ask a question. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's not directly related to that specific topic. But, like, uh, I think there's, like, a, a kind of changing of not necessarily business models, but, like, the way that, like, the money flows, I think, in a lot of this stuff. Because, like, uh, with the token model, essentially, venture is basically having to dump on retail to, re to recoup their investment, right? It's like, oh, we get a bunch of tokens. Okay, well, the, the way we recoup our investment is we sell those to players or speculators, whatever you want to call them. But basically dumping on retail is the way to recoup your investment with the token thing because unless the, uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier about buybacks, unless it's buybacks happening from the company, it's not really directly associated with game profit or sustainability of the business or anything like that necessarily. It's more like how high can we get these token prices before we go to cash them out? And can we do that sustainably along you know, our vesting periods, right? Uh, and obviously that, that's kind of got a shift, right? Because that doesn't seem like it's going to be a sustainable way to do things anymore. So it's, I'm wondering how you align then with profit or with business ownership or whatever you're looking at in terms of how do we get our, how do we get our money back, right? Like there's like the obvious ways of like, oh, we treat it like a loan, right? They, they pay us back. In, whether these increments or whatever, and it's more like a loan system, right? Where they're like, they got to make their money because they got to pay us back, right? Or it's like a system where it's like, okay, well, we're taking a part of their profit in some way. Like, it, almost like you're garnishing their profit. You're saying like, okay, a certain amount of this profit is, you know, diverting over to us, you know, to, to the people that either own the business in some way or are just owed a certain amount in some way, almost like garnishing wages. Or system where it's like, oh, well, we're looking to get a portion when this business is sold in like an exit or something like that. And it's like, so as there's these different ways of looking at how do we recoup our money as a, you know, a VC, like what are the ways that you're seeing it shift towards or you think it should shift towards away from like, like I said, the dumping on retail? I know that's like an aggressive way to put it, but realistically, that's how a lot of it went down, right? I think that realistically, that's how a lot of it went down. Um, but that's symptomatic of a time in the market where it became too easy to launch tokens before launching products. Yeah. Um, I don't think that I have any moral issue if we are investors in a game that becomes a successful digital nation where people have demand for currency and influence and governance and assets in that game, that they would acquire that from us in the market. Um, as long as like, I feel like they're buying it for a good reason, right? Like that, like, I don't think like if you're dumping on them and it's really like, here's some garbage and it's going to go down a week from now, a month from now, right? Like there's nothing here. It's vaporware. Like obviously that's unethical. Um, but the types of experiences that we seek to fund um, are fundamentally tied to like our belief that they'll have real demand because like we as gamers make a judgment that like this is a fun experience for a gamer and like we would spend money in that ecosystem, right? And so whether 
we make money on tokens because those tokens are in demand by participants in that network, um, or we make money on the equity because that company transacts. And we have, you know, we've been in the business of making equity investments in games since 2016 with with the Bitcraft structure. And as individuals, some of us much earlier than that, um, others um, like me, like since 2018 in this for this segment, um, it's like. That's that's part of the business model. Like we make venture style investments in game studios with the belief that they'll either be um, sold to someone um, or that they would be IPO candidates. I think IPO candidates becomes trickier with the current regulatory landscape of crypto because like how do you IPO a mothership that is like super indexed to tokens? And I think like we need more time to to say the words IPO and crypto together in in that way. Um, but like that's totally viable. Um, other things like garnishing profits and blah, blah, blah. Like that's, that's not the business model of venture. And so I don't even spend time thinking about that stuff. Like for us, it's like, we're either selling the business or we're seeding a network that becomes very popular and we have assets in that network and the demand of the assets outstrips the supply and we get to make that market or to, you know, be part of that market. So do you think, I mean, it, the part of the way that that works, right. For you guys to have upside all that is for you to be essentially capitalizing a bit on speculation when it comes to the market, right? Because it, it's when you're when you're cashing out, right, or when you're selling, however you want to put it, you're going to be driving value down or like price down to some extent, right? You're going to be creating sell pressure that is more likely going to be higher than buy pressure, even with high demand, right? And so you're going to be pushing much more towards a a real value, right, for the thing, and and therefore like it's it's already starting at a bit of a speculative inflated value to some extent, right? And you're pushing it down. Like I'm talking theory, right? Obviously market dynamics can get a little crazy and are maybe not the simplistic, but in some ways you're pushing it towards real value and you're basically extracting the sort of speculative inflationary, a part of that value. And like, maybe that that's totally ethical, right? Because like people were speculating, they wanted to speculate. There was demand from retail. Maybe retail was overbuying and like the demand was overly inflated. Like most of web three, realistically is you know where people are spending you know thousands of dollars on an nft for like dookie dash of all things you know like obviously people are willing to spend for all kinds of crazy stuff like especially while there's plenty of tons of extra money flying around and inflation and all that sort of thing but like at the end of the day i mean i feel like you're kind of and like correct me if i'm totally wrong on this take is is that you're capitalizing on retail speculation rather than the business speculation around like an overall sustainable market uh, because of the way, and obviously vesting periods could be much longer, you know, periods of time. And like, that has to be pretty sustainable for you to then even be able to like continue to, to pull off like speculative parts of that, uh, of that money, like the, the amount above what the real value technically should be for that thing. Like, let's say, let me give an example to, to make this sound a little less, uh, you know, wishy-washy is like, you know, say, say something like an NFT in a game is really like worth like five bucks and, you know, people exchange exchanging tokens for it. And like, you know, they're spending thousands on it in the, in the token or whatever it is. Uh, it doesn't have to be an NFT, but you know, thousands for whatever the action is in the game, the sync, uh, et cetera, in the token. And it really realistically should be about five bucks. Now, obviously if people, because there's low supply or whatever, or just FOMO behavior are spending way more than that five bucks, and eventually going to drive towards the real value of five bucks once, like, the speculative people go away, you're kind of capitalizing on that difference between, like, 
where it's at in the inflated values and what it should be. Because if it was going for five bucks, you guys probably wouldn't make any money, right? Like, because that's the real value and that's, we're not, like, you're not going to make profit at that point, right? I think, I think that this discussion will ultimately be more theoretical than pragmatic, given where we are in our investing cycle and the fact that this type of issue you're describing isn't something that we're dealing with day in, day out. Um, insofar as discussing theory goes, though, um, I th- first, I think that speculation is not a net bad thing. Um, no. I think that speculation can be used to harness virality um, in a way that's very positive. Like I've often thought about the, um, the er- like the, like the, I don't believe that play to earn is a genre, but I believe that play to earn can be a slice of how games economic model works. And in thinking about the earning component of a game, I've reflected on, um, like where those earnings come from. And in particular, drawing a dichotomy between blue collar labor and white collar labor. And the way that I think about blue collar labor is gold farming, stuff that's very repetitive, low skill around it, more hour intensive. And the way that I think about white collar labor are creative fields in which you can extract a brand premium or basically things that are like less tied to your hours. And you start seeing a decoupling between the time that you put in and like how much money you can get out, right? And I think that to have, if you're blue collar labor, the only chance that you have of high earnings with that blue collar labor is through the speculative premium of applying your labor in a game that isn't hot yet or in something that isn't hot yet. And I think that that's a totally legitimate way of you incentivizing people to come and to try to try to engage in the content and to try to make it popular and basically a, a, a marketing driver for that experience. And as long as people understand how they are engaging in that ecosystem, I think it's quite positive. Like for me, let's say I was farming some NFT whose real va- which real value is $5 and I'm currently selling it $500 in the market. It's like... If the buyers, you know, if you have whales or whoever, people who want to be in there and there's not like the expectation of like, oh, I'm going to breed too much, although I certainly think it's fine for people to take a risk on that. And over time, that value goes from 500, which is accessible to very few people, to $5, which is accessible to a lot of people and allows the game to scale. It's a good thing that the asset price trended down. And it's also a good thing that early on, some people were able to sell them for $500 because those people probably went and did a lot of marketing and brought a lot of people in and were part of the funnel. Um are we monetizing, capturing speculation with our job? I don't know. I mean, at some level, we're speculators, right? We're sitting here with management teams telling us about a vision that they're going to build five years from now or that's going to be delivered five years from now, and we're speculating that that's going to be good. So speculation is inherent to the job. But I think more of it in terms of if you look at what a long-short hedge fund trader does, um, they'll spend a lot of time trying to understand what the earnings of the business will be. They're not trying to understand what the earnings of the business will be because they want to say, oh, earnings will be $1 and the PE for this company is 16. Therefore, the stock should be 16. They're trying to say, what are the earnings priced in the market right now? And are these earnings going to beat or miss the market? And I think that the vast majority of investors, consumers, et cetera, if they sit across a management team that says, we're going to build this crazy vision, they would price that at zero, right? They would be like, this is completely out there. And my expectation is that you will miss this completely. And we get paid a lot of money for defying expectations and backing the ones that don't, right? That don't miss and and actually build something. 
Cool. I was just interested in the thinking behind a lot of it, right? Like, obviously, yeah. I don't mean it necessarily in a, in a negative or positive way, but it's like it it's the dynamics of how things work, right? And I obviously, think, um, like, it's different when it's, like, just going towards retail versus, like, you know, the stock market, which, yeah, is a lot driven by retail, but is also a lot of institutional investment, too. I think, Devin, the question, don't VCs that invest in tokens just make money on the backs of retail and, and there's speculative frenzy? Um, I feel like that's probably fueled by some recency bias, right? I think over the past years, that was very much what was happening in many cases. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of... I mean, that, I'd just like to know what changed. Like, where is it going then? Like, if that's, so, if that's the past, I, what's the future? Well, I would say that, don't forget that VC in crypto is actually really young. And yeah. in the end, any type of business um, takes time to grow to its future cash flow potential. Because in the end, that's the literally the only thing that matters in any type of investing scenario. That is, or that it's what it's all boils down to, right? You can make money on, on speculative assets. Um, you can make money on assets that are not cash flow generating. But generally, um, when there's value created, you value an asset at you know the, the the discounted sum of their future cash flows, right? And so, I think what's happening, or what happened recently, was that you know companies, early stage um, games, managed to get funded. They had a great story. The retail got really excited about their story, and they felt like they could make money, and they they wanted to speculate. And some investors that were in it earlier and were not locked up anymore took advantage of that, but. Us as investors, like we're looking for home runs, right? We're looking for companies that will have a network value. Like if we're investing in a token, our hope is that that token will be worth a hundred times as much as the amount of money we put in. And that could potentially, if we're lucky, happen through speculation that everyone gets really excited and there's not a lot of liquidity. Um, and so then the price goes up a lot. But in general, the best way to achieve that is to let the team work, let the team create value and actually solve a problem. Um, and so I guess my point is that we don't necessarily have to make money on the back of retails that are, you know, fueled through speculation. Um, I think, you know, the way you stay afloat in this business in an ethical way is to, you know, work with great founders that build great networks that have these, like can build these, you know, as Carlos mentioned, these virtual nations where people maybe have jobs and, and do this whole play to earn thing. Um, but the amount of value created there, I think will like a, share, a part of that will be captured by the team and the investors. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's in the end, what you know, the, the best fundamental investing will look like in this space. Well, then I'm really curious then, uh, like how it looks towards uh, timelines, because obviously those are going to shift where like we had a lot of stuff just kind of like within the span of one to two years, everything happened extremely fast. Games growing up, going down, like, uh, you know, hype cycles, things like that. Whereas like the real games business, like the real the real one that's not just fueled by uh, crypto madness, like the one that's more been more sustainable, tends to take like multiple years to make games. And games don't usually last more than a couple years max most of the time, right? Like, there's a few exceptions, but most games are like six months life cycle, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not doing the math to say, like, that's the exact average, but just ballpark, right? They don't last that long. So how are you guys, in, like, I'm just asking broadly, looking at timelines? Like, you know, you've got, obviously, the timeline, you know, where you're, where you're investing at. Like, at the early stages, it takes X amount of time to actually really, like, come to market if they're not pre-selling and, and making all their money off that sort of speculation prior to the game coming out. And then there's like that certain limited window in which the game 
is likely to be successful because I can't imagine you're expecting most games you invest in to last five to 10 years realistically. So it's like, what are you guys looking at timeline wise going forward from here for games? Um, We think that tokenization exists on a spectrum and on one end of the spectrum, you have simple NFT implementations that replace skins, simple assets um, and on the other end of the implementation you have, or on the other end of the spectrum, you have an implementation that has fungible tokens, whether it's one or two token models, whatever, right? But like fungible tokens and like a real economy. Um, so one side looks like, I don't know, castle, like, like it's like a tower defense game, like something that's interesting enough that like there's good asset economy to that but like nothing crazy and then the other end it would be if you could ever have a game like eve with crypto um for the games that we've generally invested on the fungible token side in particular call it for a normalized market right um we actually do think that those can be sustainable five-year-plus experiences, right? When we're underwriting some MMORPG digital nation type game, like we are making the bet that it will take you six months to seed liquidity alone, right? Because it takes time to get people in and to start trading and to do all those things. And we look as examples at a game like EVE that has existed with a great economy for 20-plus years and World of Warcraft and a bunch of other ones. For games that are simpler, I think that that's where, like, you look at hyper-casual mobile and the games last, like, weeks, right? And so that's where um, the longevity point that you make, I think, is ever more pressing. And in that case, um, we wouldn't want to be exposed to a token that has no need to exist to the extent that there is a token um, similar to non-fungible assets, the use of them is probably to incentivize your audience to stick with your next title because that really is like a content mill, right? Where you're like trying to give them different things. And perhaps instead of switching to a new game where your assets lose value um, or selling your tokens for a 20% exit tax or like what, like however you try to gate it, you can roll into a new experience and preserve more upside. And when you're looking at a sector where your day 30 retention is 10% if you're excellent, but like 5% for a lot of these experiences, you take that from five to 7% um, with operating leverage, that's a big difference in earnings, right? Um, and so that's where I think the longevity thing makes more sense is like using it to retain a broader usage pattern around your ecosystem. I think that's harder with to- uh, fungible tokens than, non-f- than uh, non-fungible ones. Do you think there's the situations then where you can invest in a game and it's like, oh, well, if that game fails, those assets might be repurposed, uh, like the digital assets might be repurposed into like another game, you know, the tokens or the NFTs. So it's like you could kind of hedge your bet a little bit that way. Or if it's like an ecosystem kind of investment or it's like, well, you know, they're going to they're going to do 10 games. And if, you know, five of them fail, that's fine. We're going to bet that at least one of them will last for a while. Those those kinds of things, because those like those don't exist right in the non-crypto space but those have the possibility to potentially crypto. like let's say you were invested in like you know f1 delta time obviously it's like well those assets are dead now but if it was like generic race cars that might apply to multiple race car games and like maybe not pitching interoperability right at the beginning but it's like hey if that game fails maybe we can take those that invested audience and then try and you know like axie almost did basically with axie infinity and then origins right where they're like we'll try and take that semi-captive audience make those assets work in a sort of new game 
uh, that sort of thing. Like, is that something that factors in to those times? Yeah. So, so that's, that's basically the, the thesis of how we think that crypto fits the more casual end of the spectrum where it really is about retaining the user over an ecosystem of games. Um, I don't think that those assets have as much value for someone else to come in and like, let me figure out how to build with them, right? To your point about interoperability, but within the ecosystem, it, when we're making those types of investments, there's generally a story around, we're going to make this game and there's like two other games in the pipeline. And in general, like we're targeting this audience, female, 25 to 34, they like this kind of game. And, you know, it's basically that. Yeah, I, just, I, I mean, I, I'm not a VC myself, so it's like, and I don't even do a lot of investing. So it's definitely a different mindset. Uh, obviously, I've, I've more on the development side and the design side. So it's it's interesting to think about uh, the different ways of trying to approach it with money. Because obviously, I feel like money and, and business side of things has always been kind of this villain to game developers and game designers where they've always had to kind of deal with it. And it's like the publisher is on me again, you know, the enemy that's like, the necessary villain sort of thing. And it's like, you guys are in an interesting spot as VCs, right? Because you are not controlling the way like maybe a publisher would or like a parent company or these sorts of like investments where you're coming in and meddling to an extent, right? You guys are like, well, we just want to make sure we make some money off stuff and we're just going to do a bit of due diligence, make sure that like you're not full of crap, hopefully. And then we'll sprinkle some money in and hope some magic happens, plant some seeds and all that. But it's like, you guys maybe aren't the villains so much as like uh, as this just kind of maybe the, maybe you guys could be the wise old man uh, character or something like that. It's like, where do you guys see yourself in that ecosystem uh, with games, especially because it's a different market than, you know, a lot of other businesses that are like, say, retail or even like the, the digital version of retail where it's like strictly business proposition. Like there's no art to it. There's no creativity. You're not crushing anyone's dreams. Uh, well, I mean, I guess small businesses can be like that, but you, you get what I mean, right? Like it's, it's a different business area than a lot of other businesses that say VC invests in. Yeah. I wish, I wish we could, uh, edit this video to insert that Rick Rubin, uh, interview to uh, Anderson Cooper. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, he's a big time music, uh, music business person, producer, um, he's a very tall guy, long beard, whatever. And this reporter asked him, it's like, so like, do you play any instruments? And he's like, no, he's like, but you can like mix and operate a soundboard. Right. And he's like, I have no technical skills whatsoever, have zero idea of how to do any music. And he's like, then like, why are you the most successful music producer? He's like, I have really strong taste. And artists appreciate my opinion. <laughs> and it's like, and I say that because it's like you are choosing a partner to be there in a way that's less hands-on than a publisher because you don't control the businesses, but it is still ideally because you care about having us and our advice and our experience, like all that stuff. Um, but there's a strong level of taste and subjectivity to it, right? Which is like am I going to geek out with you on this economy and this loop and this genre and like how you could build this in an awesome way or am I disinterested in it? And I think that that where we fit in ideally is by backing things that we would love to play um, or that we would love to be a part of or if it becomes more of like the B2B SaaS whatever parts of the ecosystem that we have a strong perspective of like why it matters. Um, but like I've, you know, the, the the game investment deals that we've made and the fund that have been like my deals, right? Because everyone on the team is responsible for different things. Um, 
the vast majority of them have been things that I'm fundamentally sitting here and like, when can I play it? Right. Like, when can I go to this thing? Like I went to an event of a portfolio company like last month and I was there with them because like, I really care about that. Right. And that's, that's personally where I'd like to fit in. Right. It's just helping people geek out on stuff that I love geeking out on, um, with the capital markets angle on top. Yeah. I think, uh, VCs have filled a specific niche and, you know, I think they're like they're portrayed as a, as a bad guy sometimes. Um, but it's also interesting that without VCs, we might not have a bunch of awesome products that we love and, and, and do and play every day. So it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting dynamics and, and some good questions, Devin. Cool. Good. Fantastic. Um, I think um, maybe maybe one more, um, Carlos. You know, you mentioned expensive um, learnings, and um, I was wondering, can you share one more expensive learning over the past that you got over the past, like investing in Web three and games over the past uh, two you years? Save us some money to teach yeah, us exactly. for free. <laughs> um, expensive is relative, and I say it certainly wasn't as expensive as like concentrated equity positions. Um, but I think that one thing that we're seeing in the current market to be very mindful of is the revenge of the party rounds. Um, and what I mean by that is a lot of entrepreneurs last year approached early stage or token sale allocations as uh, as a banker would do like a pre-IPO round. Um, and it made sense, right, because they were about to launch tokens publicly. Um, but the priorities of doing that are such that you're incentivized in having the most amount of people in your token table as possible because you want to go out to the market and say, hey, look at all these smart VCs that bought this token. Okay. The problem with that um, is... When that next round comes and you're looking around to see who's going to have conviction to do their follow-on investment, to go out there and make introductions for you, to support you, et cetera, when the market turns, no one has enough skin in the game to, to care about this stuff, right? And like all those party rounds just aren't a party anymore because you're sort of alone with a bunch of people that aren't incentivized to help you. Um, and I think that it's interesting, the market conditions are such that, um, that a lot of of party rounds aren't happening simply because a lot of investment capital isn't here anymore. And a lot of tourist funds are now talking about AI or whatever the f bullshit they do to follow the winds of the market. Um, you could say, but, fuck yeah, um, <laughs> but the, um, but, but we actually still see it in some of like the really hot crypto stuff where every now and then there's some deal that people get really excited about. Um, and I think that in general, the deals that I've seen strong excitement about, I would say are high quality deals. Like I haven't seen as much, like in the bear market, there were a lot of things that were full of people around them. Now I was like, God, like this is fucking stupid. Um, but like now in general, the things that I'm seeing that are hot, I'm like, okay, like this is actually really cool. Good team, blah, blah. But they're quickly becoming the, yeah, let's raise at some crazy value with, 10 different people on the token table and all these angels, all this thing. And it's like, people are still searching for that party structure instead of true partnership a lot um, or not a lot, but they search it very often when they have the opportunity. And I would argue that they shouldn't try to do that. Um, and that you're actually better off following long-term benchmarks of raising a little bit on your pre-seed or your seed, and then like proving out the product a little bit and thinking about growth and a none, like basically having, 
you know, if you could, you would have a partner that's an expert in each one of these things that like at each phase, right? If you think about like the the long term success case of some of these venture venture startups, it's like, oh, I was doing a B two B SaaS company, and my angel was the CEO of Salesforce, and he helped me with some introductions, and then I got like a really awesome. B2B SaaS VC who had an expertise because the guy had built a business and that came to the growth round and we were taking the product in this direction and this GP and this other fund like had invested in, right? Like it was all very tied to like, who's the individual? What expertise do they have? Like, what will this partner add to my board? How do they fit the stage of the company that I'm in? Um, and I think that there's like, there's something very beautiful and like good about that. Um, and and um, I think that there was a, cheap lesson on a relative basis to be in some party rounds and see them biting back now. Um, and I would, um, I would, I would hope that people sort of lean off of these things sooner rather than later. Fantastic. Good. Good. All right. Um, Carlos, thank you so much for joining. It's always a pleasure to have you on with your insights. It's really fun. Devin, thank you for joining as well. Any last, wait, Carlos, any last shout out you want to do? Where can people find you? And don't tell them your private Bitcraft address because then they can dis- like distill from that mine as well. You can, yeah. I was just going to give them your email address instead and skip that step. <laughs> um, no, that's okay. I don't know. I feel like uh, it's about time for people to start thinking about GDC. And if you're building and you're going to try to meet with us at GDC, it'd be nice to get that email now instead of March fifth. Let's plan it in. Yes, great idea. You're going to be there too, right, Devin? That's the idea. Uh, luckily for me, I, I'm, I'm closer than most people, so yeah. it's a little easier for me to go. Look at you, man. Good. Dude, it's like a nine-hour time difference for me, and I'm bad with sleep, so it's it's suffering, man. So if you, if you see me there, I'm going to apologize in advance for either asking you really stupid questions um, or just not asking anything at all. Um, in any case, uh, we'll, we'll do something there. So uh, if you're there, let us know, and we can hang out. Fantastic. Carlos Devin, thank you so much for your time, for joining. This was really good. Peace. And listener, thank you for listening. Um, I hope you learned as much as I did. Um, and if you did like it, let us know and uh, leave a like or a review. That helps out a lot. And with that, we're out and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Ciao. See ya. See ya.